57th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. Our first guest on this season seven titled Breaking the Rules of Healthcare is Malcolm Gladwell. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the Omicron surge is winding down, but the number of deaths continues to be high with the overwhelming majority coming from the unvaccinated. As such, it is ironic that given the high percentage of Americans who refuse to take the vaccine, that the biggest news this week is the continuing expansion in eligibility. Moderna, like Pfizer, now has full FDA approval for its drug, and Novavax, another manufacturer, has applied for and is likely to get emergency use authorization for its vaccine. The biggest controversy last week came from Pfizer, which had asked the FDA to approve its vaccine for the 18 million kids in the US under the age of five, despite data showing the vaccine wasn't effective at the doses that have been used during the current trials. The company has now delayed that request. In other news, we now better understand how different the trajectory of Omicron transmission is compared to previous strains. Data out of Great Britain show that people are contagious as early as two days after becoming infected with Omicron, and that's far sooner than with previous strains. Research has also confirmed that the virus is slightly less lethal for people who become infected. We've thought this for a while, but now we have the specific data. It comes from the CDC, and it shows that people who tested positive for Omicron, they were likely to die nine, per thousand compared to 13 deaths per thousand during the Delta surge. But since Omicron spreads several times more rapidly than Delta, that means that the number of deaths overall is greater, which has pushed the total mortality from this pandemic to over 900,000 Americans. And unlike previous variants, people need a booster for strong protection. The good news is that Americans who are vaccinated and boosted are somewhere between 30 and maybe as high as 90 times less likely to die from Omicron than those who aren't vaccinated, based on the specific study that one looks at. In one study from the CDC, those vaccinated but not boosted are 14 times less likely to die compared to the unvaccinated, but they're seven times more likely than individuals who are vaccinated and boosted to die. At this point, about 80% of eligible Americans have received at least one dose of the vaccine, with 68% of eligible Americans having had two shots. And the latter group, among those eligible for a booster, 
based on the time since the last shot, 51% have received their third dose. But unfortunately, the percentages, rather than still rising, appear to have stalled out, and they're unlikely to become much better in the future. According to the CDC, fewer than 100,000 people are getting their first dose each day. It's the lowest number since the data began to be collected at the end of 2020, and fewer than 200,000 Americans are getting a booster shot each day, the lowest since these third doses were recommended six months ago. And of course, immunity continually wanes after the last shot. One positive aspect of Omicron is that it has shifted people's views about how much social distancing is needed, particularly for people who are vaccinated and boosted. We're seeing states, blue states like California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York and Rhode Island, moving far faster than the CDC at eliminating mask mandates. The governors of each of these are comfortable with the combination of a high vaccination rate with major spikes early in the Omicron surge provided sufficient protection for the residents of their states. And many of them, including New Jersey, Delaware, Oregon, and Connecticut, have announced they'll be ending the mask mandate in schools. The exact dates, they vary by state. Most are late February or sometime in March. At that point, it'll be up to the individual school boards to decide local policy. And of course, in each of these states, students, teachers, and staff can still choose to wear a mask for their personal safety. Jeremy, Omicron has highlighted how difficult it continues to be for the CDC to communicate clearly. The agency says that it both supports its current recommendations not to relax restrictions, and it simultaneously supports the governors making local decisions. These two points of view are incompatible, and I believe Americans are paying an ever higher price for the confusion. Ravi, I had heard that Australia has gone from one of the more restrictive to one of the more liberal nations in response to Omicron. What happened? You're correct. Australia had a zero COVID-19 approach. As an island, it can restrict its borders, isolate those with the infection and quarantine their close contacts. Omicron has changed that calculus. With nearly 95% of people vaccinated and the new variants so easily transmitted, the problems so of social distancing and strict governmental policies, they have been deemed worse than the danger from the disease itself at this point. And of course, the results of relaxing the restrictions are exactly what one would predict. Infections, since they were relaxed, have soared to 150,000 a day, at least in one particular day, and they'd never been above 3,000 before. And simultaneously, deaths have only increased minimally, as one might expect with a combination of vaccination boosting and the current Omicron variant, and they remain under 100 per day compared to over 2,000 in the US. As you might expect, given this 180-degree U-turn in policy, Australians aren't sure what they should be doing. Stay indoors and be masked, or go back to pubs and their pre-pandemic activities. After two years of intense shutdown, it's hard to know whether to be afraid or celebrate. And of course, with national elections coming in May, some pundits have criticized this new policy as being politics overriding science. But Jeremy, I know you're very interested in some of the misinformation on social media. And this is a great example. I came across um, information specific to Australia. 
on social media, anti-vaxxers were pointing out that the people who died on one of the days were 97 deaths amongst individuals who were vaccinated and only 31 for people who weren't vaccinated. The social media accounts were implying that this means that the vaccine doesn't work. But as we said, Australia has an extremely high vaccination rate. And when we factor that in, what you find is exactly the opposite. More specifically, when you look at the entire time since the restrictions were eased and you factor in the difference in the size of the populations between the vaccinated and unvaccinated in terms of risk, there was a mortality rate of 91 deaths per 100,000 people amongst the unvaccinated and only 3.5 deaths per 100,000 vaccinated Australians, a 30-fold reduction, not an increase. Be careful interpreting data out of context. Jeremy, I find it interesting that throughout this pandemic, the strongest arguments for restrictions on people and mandatory vaccinations have been the need to not overwhelm hospitals and of course, the desire to save lives. At this point, nearly all the deaths are in the unvaccinated group, as the data for Australia demonstrates. And yet our nation has one approach recommended for everyone. At what point, if ever, will elected officials say that's no longer the government's responsibility to restrict the vaccinated in order to save the lives of people who could become vaccinated at no cost, but for personal reasons, they choose not to do so. Rabbi, I think that pretty much all the restrictions should have been lifted maybe a little while ago. Those who want to be vaccinated have been. Those who refuse are likely going to continue to refuse. I know I take much more of a conservative or libertarian mindset when it comes to some of these issues, but to what extent uh, are the restrictions even worth it, especially if it comes with the civil unrest, economic problems, mental health, and substance abuse issues that it has caused? The recent study out of Johns Hopkins said the lockdowns really didn't do much to help and likely cause more harm than good. I understand during surges not wanting to get hospitals overwhelmed, but at this point we really need to get back to as normal of a life as possible, especially for children. Omicron has been very mild in those who've been vaccinated, as you've said. We need to let people live their lives the way they want to live them and take on the amount of personal risk they want to take. Now that we know the vaccines do not stop the spread of the virus or prevent people from getting it, it's kind of hard to argue again, what is the point of the restrictions? I think we as a nation need to acknowledge that the people that are going to get vaccinated have been, and those that refuse to will continue to do so. We need to go back to normal life for the sake of the nation and the world. Ravi, a listener wondered if the court's ruling saying that the federal government couldn't mandate vaccination for workers would impact private businesses. Do you think it will? Jeremy, this question remains controversial, and it's now being tested in the lower courts. For background, the Biden administration issued two directives about mandatory vaccination. One directive was for OSHA to mandate and enforce vaccinations as a condition to work for companies with greater than 100 employees. And the other was for the Health and Human Services, HHS, to mandate that all employees in health facilities, which would include hospitals, that receive reimbursement from Medicare or Medicaid would have to be vaccinated. Although similar sounding, the two mandates are very different. OSHA's mandate is about workers' safety. And the Supreme Court ruled that this congressionally given power doesn't extend to mandating vaccination. 
the argument that many of these workplaces put people in close proximity and thereby increased the risk of infection and death wasn't enough to convince the justices that COVID-19 was fundamentally a workplace safety issue. As such, SCOTUS ruled against imposing the requirement. But since HHS wasn't mandating the vaccine per se, but only as a condition for payment, the court ruled that mandating vaccination would fall under the agency's purview. The Supreme Court didn't rule on whether a mandate was a good or bad idea, but solely about whether the governmental agency has the right to take the actions it wanted to do. In contrast to the issues with the federal agencies, employers do have the right to impose work conditions unless they violate the protections that exist against discriminating by class, meaning age, sex, race, et cetera. As such, businesses mandating vaccination are likely to be able to continue to do so. Although with the current makeup of the Supreme Court, it's hard to predict with certainty what will happen. Currently, half of employers are either mandating vaccines or planning to do so, while 42% are not considering implementing this requirement at this point. Having said that, the shortage of workers that persists amongst the US workforce may lead some companies to reconsider whether the price of vaccine mandates is worth it. Robbie, you mentioned that the FDA has been considering approving of the vaccine for kids under five, but that it wasn't effective. But now they've decided to delay. That all sounds very confusing. What is going on here? Jeremy, you're absolutely right. This is very confusing. First, the facts. When the current vaccine was tested on kids under the age of five, it was found to be relatively safe, but at the reduced doses administered, it generated relatively low levels of antibodies. The company is hopeful that when kids are given a third booster dose, their antibody levels will rise and fully protect them. But of course, that hasn't been proven, so it's not yet guaranteed. But there's also a quirk in the data. The antibody levels generated in the six-month to two-year group were better than what was generated in the two- to four-year cohort. And it was this two- to four-year group in which there was no significant protection afforded by the two doses that were tested. Now, why this happened, that's unclear. There are some possibilities. First, the number of kids tested was relatively small, so the numbers could change as more children are included in the study. Second, the weight difference between a six-month-old and a four-year-old is huge, and as such, we could be seeing mainly a dosing issue. Pfizer argued that since it takes a month from shot one to shot two, and then several more months until a booster is given, that approving the first two doses now will accelerate the time to immunity. And of course it would, assuming the vaccine is effective in these children, but that has yet to be proven. Moreover, critics of giving approval argued that since infection is relatively mild in most kids, that it would be rash to begin vaccination without proof of efficacy in this particular age group. If I had to guess, Jeremy, I suspect the reasons for the delay were both political and economic. After announcing the plan to begin vaccination, 
Pfizer expected a warm welcome from parents who finally could now protect their little ones. Instead, families reacted with confusion and suspicion. And once that creeps into the equation, the likelihood of high uptake over time diminishes. As such, from a financial perspective, it would be better for Pfizer to wait for the final trials and tell people that the vaccine definitely works for kids in this age range, regardless of exactly how old they are. Remember that even for kids age five to 12, less than a third have been fully vaccinated, a rate significantly lower than for adults. And it's one thing to subject your child in middle school to the risks inherent in any vaccine, and another when it's your one-year-old. And there's one more factor at play. Remember several months ago on the show, we discussed the approval by the FDA of an Alzheimer drug that costs over $50,000 a year and is most likely ineffective? The criticism of this decision by the FDA that's been made by doctors and health care policy experts remains very loud. At this point, most clinicians have rejected the use of this drug and Medicare is likely to only pay for its administration if done as part of a research project to assess its efficacy, something the drug company that manufacture it doesn't want to happen for obvious reasons. Making another massive mistake would have been too risky for the agency given the lack of a permanent director at the time this request was being submitted and the congressional battle that was happening in the background over ratification of Robert Califf for the role. Now that he's approved by the Senate, and that happened last week, but by a very narrow margin, we'll see if the situation improves and if the CDC communication becomes clearer and fully scientifically based. Robbie, in our last show, you mentioned the new variant, BA.2. Anything new on its spread? Jeremy, this variant has been a bit of an anomaly. The data says that it's more transmissible than the original BA.1, and it's become dominant in Denmark and India, but it hasn't exploded in most nations the way Omicron originally did relative to Delta. Now that doesn't mean that it won't. Possibly at this point, the protection afforded by BA.1 is better against BA.2 than the protection from Delta was against BA.1. Or maybe the initial surge in BA.1 came from a super spreader event at holiday times, and BA.2 will dominate everywhere just at a slower rate now that we've moved into a new year. It's just too early to tell. But regardless, most scientists believe that BA.2 is more transmissible than BA.1. The data on transmissibility has come from comparing the likelihood of people living in the same household becoming infected when one person is, and they found that family members coming down with BA.2 when one person in the household is sick was higher than it was with BA.1. The good news overall is that this new mutant doesn't appear any more dangerous than the first Omicron strain was, and as such, few of us will notice if BA.2 does become dominant. 
Robbie, a listener said that she heard that the coronavirus vaccine is impacting women's menstrual cycles. Is this true? Jeremy, the answer is yes, but based on research of 4,000 women over six months, the impact it has is tiny. Less than one day for a woman who's had one shot during a single menstrual cycle and only two days when the woman has received two shots during a single menstrual cycle. And a small delay of a day or two, that's common whenever a woman's body mounts an immune response, whether following infection or vaccination. As such, from a health and reproductive perspective, there's no real impact or reason for concern. In contrast to the fears about this one-day delay, two recent studies showed that vaccination of either partner didn't impact fertility, including couples using in vitro fertilization. For this and other reasons, vaccination continues to be strongly recommended for women and their partners when they're trying to become pregnant, either now or in the future. Prior studies that we discussed in the show demonstrated that the risk of preterm birth is less in vaccinated than unvaccinated women. And a recent study by the CDC showed that infants less than six months old were 61% less likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 if their mothers were vaccinated during pregnancy. This goes along with the research we discussed in our prior show that found that the antibodies that the vaccination produces, these antibodies cross the placenta and they're transferred to the baby in utero. Finally, in contrast to the minimal impact vaccination has on a woman's menstrual cycle, in men who weren't vaccinated but became infected with the coronavirus, fertility dropped significantly. Couples in which the man wasn't vaccinated who were trying to become pregnant were 18% less likely to be successful over the next 60 days than when the father was vaccinated. So far, every concern related to the vaccine has been shown to be far more problematic and dangerous from the infection itself, including the risk of people developing heart problems, blood clots, or experiencing pregnancy-related difficulties. Robbie, how many Americans died overall over the past two years compared to what otherwise would have been expected? Jeremy, researchers have calculated that the coronavirus pandemic has led to more than a million more deaths over the past two years than would have been expected over the same two-year period without this pandemic. The total is a combination of many factors. The biggest, of course, is the virus itself, which has accounted for over 900,000 deaths so far. Then there's the opioid crisis with tens of thousands of added deaths over the past two years, resulting from the consequences of social distancing and isolation. And then there are patients who didn't go to the ER for fear of exposure to the virus or couldn't be admitted to the hospital as a result of care delivery overload. Putting these numbers into context, the added number of deaths over the past two years is approximately the total for all American lives lost in World War II. And that happened, as you know, over a three and a half year period, nearly double the time since the pandemic began. Robbie, our good news segment is something that's valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, the best news is the steep decline in Omicron cases that we're seeing, 
and the likelihood that the worst of the current spike is over. Of course, it will be weeks before deaths, a lagging statistic, return to previous levels. And it's great news that unlike in the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919, the current pandemic continues to spare the lives of nearly all children. Having said that, Omicron is problematic and it's affecting every part of our lives. The Olympics is just one example. You know, hockey is an exhausting sport. You know, you're, you're a fan. Skaters sprint up and down the arena so fast they're usually replaced every minute or two. And yet if viewers tuned into the game between Canada and Russia, for the first two periods, both teams wore masks that compromised their air intake. Only when Russia fell behind four to one did the Russian team take off their masks. The game was filled with intrigue, but not because of the score, Canada won six to one, but the COVID-19 test results and disease status of players on both teams. The entire Olympic village environment is eerily controlled to avoid disease spread, not only to the participants in the games, but also everyone outside the sports venues. Chinese citizens have been instructed not to provide assistance to any of the athletes, either if there's a major car crash or some other medical emergency. For sports fans in the US, there's a final piece of good news. Omicron didn't impact the Super Bowl game for the players, even if it led some fans to tone down the size of their parties. Robbie, we heard from several listeners who said they enjoyed our insights on the last coronavirus, the truth showing the necessity to break healthcare's rules, and enjoyed reading the first two Forbes articles you wrote on the topic. Can you tell them about your newest article on technology? Jeremy, each of these articles in the series comes out of an observation, one that I've made about a contradiction in healthcare. The first article began with the realization that one of the most powerful tools doctors have at their disposal, it's the iPhone, and yet medical school professors ignore its potential to improve medical care, and they ban students from using it when they take exams. The second was the realization that we pay doctors as much for doing a procedure that adds little or no value as we do when they consistently improve people's lives. This third article in the series, just published this week, examines why doctors love certain technologies and denigrate others, even when the latter ones have a more positive impact on patients. I point out that when Daniel Fahrenheit invented the thermometer capable of determining a patient's temperature to the 10th of a degree, doctors refused to use it. They preferred to rely on their hands with far less accuracy. And I contrast that type of experience with the operative robot that hasn't been shown to save lives or significantly reduce surgical complications, but which doctors enthusiastically embrace and search for ever more uses each month. And in contrast to the operative robot, I point to a current example, telemedicine, data analytics, and AI, all of which have been proven to increase diagnostic accuracy, improve clinical outcomes, and could save tens of thousands of lives from heart attacks, cancers, and strokes. But they're all undervalued and underutilized by physicians. These contradictions, why do they happen? I point out in the article that they're specifically entwined, the technology is entwined with the impact its implementation has on physician status. And that any new technology 
that diminishes the doctor's status is going to be ignored. The operative robot increases status and the boundary for its uses are continually being pushed. But the various computer-based technologies, they make the doctor seem less special, maybe not even quite as good as a AI algorithm. And just like the thermometer from two centuries ago in the past, they are underutilized despite the massive potential they have to improve clinical outcomes and the health of patients. Jeremy, you have a background in technology. Does the possibility of AI contributing to your medical care excite you or make you fearful? Robbie, I think it's super exciting. Based on previous conversations I've had with you, uh, the prediction powers that AI adds to healthcare or the ability to help spot a potentially cancerous mole without a doctor needing to look at it first are very exciting. I think AI could totally change healthcare for the better of the patient in ways we might not even be able to imagine yet. We often hear companies and people pitching a silver bullet that will fix and transform American healthcare for the better. And most of the time what we're actually getting is a marketing pitch for something that's either not feasible or won't make as large of an impact as the company pitching it is trying to get people to believe. AI, in my opinion, as it becomes more sophisticated and more and more uses for it in medicine are discovered and perfected, has the ability to truly change and improve American healthcare on a scale that we may not even be able to comprehend yet. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, I'd like to go back to the question you posed about the number of added deaths that our nation has experienced over the past two years. Statisticians have concluded that the recent Omicron surge made people sick around the globe and made actually more people sick at a given moment than any disease has over the past 100 years. That includes every year since 1918 to 1919 when the flu pandemic struck. In a matter of a couple of months, Omicron infected one in every six residents in England, one in five people in Denmark, one in nine individuals in Israel. And assuming that at least half of Americans who've been infected with Omicron either were never tested or used the home kit and didn't report the results, we can conclude that the US has had even higher levels than these other nations. Some epidemiologists estimate that Omicron has infected as much as 40% of the US population. But rather than this high prevalence being negative, for the first time in the pandemic, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. I believe we finally have started to reach an endemic status, which as I wrote in Forbes, should be a cause for celebration. My criterion for labeling it endemic is that our response to a disease should approximate the severity of the problem for most highly lethal diseases like smallpox and Ebola, every precaution and the most aggressive responses should be needed. Early in the pandemic, COVID-19 was in this category with the possibility of overwhelming hospitals and taking the lives of millions of people before either a vaccine or herd immunity was reached. But now the availability of a safe, highly effective vaccine has changed that calculus. Now the vaccinated and boosted have a risk from COVID-19 that most closely approximates the flu. And to me, when the risk is the same as the flu, it implies that the disease is endemic. Let me offer a, a few more thoughts. Let's begin by comparing the flu and COVID-19. 
The flu mutates every year, with most strains being similar to the previous ones. This means that most people have some protection, although with the flu, the old and young both remain vulnerable. And COVID-19 in the vaccinated is similar. With the new strains coming, the old still being vulnerable, but fortunately, as we said on the show, the young being relatively well protected. Then there's some years when the influenza vaccine mutates in more radical ways, and we see severe disease and much higher rates of death. Fortunately, so far, this hasn't happened with the coronavirus. So in both of these ways, the coronavirus is no worse and better than the danger from the flu. What we see is that the annual mortality from the flu is about 40 to 60,000 people. Now let's assume that 90% of the deaths that are happening from the current Omicron surge is in the unvaccinated. Once the surge starts to go away, the daily mortality, if everyone in the United States were vaccinated and boosted, would be about 100 to 200 deaths a day, which is the equivalency to the flu relative to annual mortality. The estimated chances of people who become infected with the flu dying is around 0.1% or one in a thousand. Assuming that the mortality among the unvaccinated is 1%, but vaccination plus boostering reduces it 30 times, the chance of someone who's infected but fully vaccinated and boosted of dying is significantly less than the flu. You know, these and other comparisons demonstrate that the current coronavirus isn't any more dangerous than the flu for Americans who are fully vaccinated and boosted, and that most likely the risk is actually significantly less. And the likelihood of a mutation that could kill a higher percentage of people is in practice greater for the flu than for this coronavirus. But of course, all of these reassuring conclusions and all of these comparisons come with the caveat that everyone would need to be vaccinated and boosted for the conclusions to be fully accurate. And of course, that's not the case. I point this out to emphasize that what our nation faces, I believe, is less of a pandemic threat today and more of a vaccine challenge. And that implies we need to look at each segment of the population and ask what is a most appropriate response for that segment of the population rather than a one-size-fits-all national recommendation. For those individuals who are vaccinated and boosted, their risk is very minimal. It's less than the flu, unless they have an immunodeficiency disease. So why not let them lead a normal life? And for those Americans who still refuse to be vaccinated, the reality is they're unlikely to wear a mask or socially distance, no matter what the government says. Of course, always, there's always the danger of overwhelming hospitals from a spike in infections among the unvaccinated. And here we have two choices. We can mandate the vaccine as the best way to avoid it happening or implement restrictions when the numbers in any given geographic area rise rapidly. Both can work and if successful, either is better than what exists today. You know, when I put the pieces together, Jeremy, if I were President Biden, I'd propose a date when we declare the pandemic over and the endemic state reached. It would give everyone a chance to decide what they wanted to do. 
For the vaccinated, hopefully they'd make sure they were boosted. For the unvaccinated, hopefully they'd use the time to get the three doses of the vaccine and reduce their risk of dying by 30 times. Businesses could decide whether or not they wanted to use the time to mandate vaccine as a condition of employment. But in the end, whatever people and businesses individually chose, our nation would then treat this viral risk just like we treat the flu. Stay home if you're sick. Be cautious if you have major medical problems. And return to a normal life or wear a mask if that's what you choose. Waiting for the unvaccinated to change their mind, I believe, is foolhardy. I believe that we are entering the period of an endemic virus, one that is, has risk, but its risk is similar to other currently endemic viruses, and that is how we should approach the coronavirus from my perspective going forward. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.